hold that image of one young child being led in your mind as I read from Hosea 11. Starting at verse 1 through verse 7. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria. He will be their king, because they refuse to turn, return to me. And the sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they call them to the one on high. None at all exalts him. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to not only study and to understand these images, but Father, that we might uh, worship you more because of them, that we might know you better, that we might be in awe of you because of who you are and how the prophet here displays your glory and your love and your majesty. And so we ask that you would touch our hearts and that you would cause us to walk closely with thee. And we ask that you would do this for your church, that we might be built up, that we might glorify your name. In Christ's name we pray. Hopefully you can see that this fourth vignette that Hosea has taken us through in these last couple of chapters is, is different from the first three. We have the kind of the agrarian theme, the, the theme of the, the weary but delighted traveler who finds the grapes in the wilderness. We have the theme of the vine dresser, the one who tends his luxuriant vine and tries to tame it to be fruitful for himself. And last week, the vision or the image of the husbandman, the one who leads the heifer to, to plow, to harrow, to bring forth that which is in keeping with his righteousness. And now in chapter 11, throughout this chapter, we see the image that I think is unmistakable here that God is father. God is a parent. He is still nostalgic. He is still looking back with joy at the image of Israel as a youth. And he is very passionate when he thinks of that image. He's gentle, but he is also a grieving parent. He's anguished, but he is a loving parent. And what is the uniqueness of this image compared to the others? What is here that is not at least as obvious in the other images? There is that note of hope. Hope beyond punishment for Israel. 
hope based not on the goodness of men, they haven't changed, or on the kindness of the assaulting army of the Assyrians, nor, as we have seen here again, on the counsel of their own princes and somehow working out their hope, but on the uniqueness of Jehovah himself, the uniqueness of God himself. Martin Luther said, the whole scriptures aim especially at this, that we should believe and be confident that God is a gracious and merciful God. And here in the vision, the image of the parent, we see God is a gracious and merciful God. God as a loving parent. God as a caring parent. God as one who is intimately involved in the life of his children. In fact, I believe that it is true that of one, one commentator has said that here we see that God even overrides with his covenant love, he overrides his covenant law. As we see in these verses how he loved Israel as his son, that he calls him, I think we will see that he did not indeed follow the legal background that he himself gave in Deuteronomy. And what is that background? In chapter 21 of Deuteronomy, it says that when a family, when a mother and father have a child, and it says in the scripture several times, a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his parents. And they say that when we chastise him, he just doesn't listen to us. God instructs them to take the child before the elders of the city. And they will question him, apparently, and find that he will not obey. And indeed, he is a glutton and a drunkard, they testify to them. And then, what is the instruction? That he should be taken by the elders and stoned to death. But why? What is God driving at there? He says in the final verse of that section, Deuteronomy 21, 21, So you shall remove the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear of it and fear. And yet we see God here in the midst of all these things that we've seen the people of Israel do. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What we see here is that God's choice was free. God, God did not have his hands tied here. In Deuteronomy 7, we read, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord did not choose you, and here's God's choice, did not choose you because you were more in number than all the other peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. It is God's love that is the basis for what we read here. God's love that he chose them out of all the peoples of the earth. And, and yet we see this immature Israel, the, the youth he calls him here, a child who is, is not mature enough to, to act and be responsible as an adult, to function as an adult. And yet we know that God, even from the one we looked at last time, Ezekiel 16, that chapter, that, that, that graphic 
look at what Israel was like as a child, as a baby. One that he says, no eye looked with pity on you to have compassion on you, but I entered into a covenant with you and you became mine. There is this possession and we see it again, my son, he calls him. Remember that when he brought them out of Egypt, right? And this is what he's reenacting re for us here, the bringing out of Egypt. What did he tell Pharaoh? He says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Yeah, I mean, it's clear. God, God has chosen freely, and he's adopted them. This is, this is the purpose. I have, I have adopted them, and he says, let my people go that they may serve me. He's adopting them to be his children, but in doing so to be fruitful for him, to serve him, the, the purpose is clear. And God is saying to them, these are the ones I've chosen for myself. In, in Jeremiah 12, in another passage where he, he's lamenting the fact that, that they are going into exile, he, he says, these people, the beloved of my soul. That, that's the depth of God's love for these people. In Deuteronomy 32, he calls them the apple of his eye. Uh, that there's something intimate there. That, that this is not a God who is far off. This is not a God who is, is aloof. This is not a God who, who doesn't care for the people. He, he's giving his soul, the beloved of my soul, he says. And as he reenacts this, the, the language here in, in um, Hosea 11 verse 2 is is not clear. Some of your versions say the more they called to them. Some of the versions say the more I called to them. And there is perhaps a poignancy in that. The more that I called to them, I brought them out of Egypt. I called them my son, but I kept calling to them in the wilderness, but they the more I called, the more they went from me. But I, but I think the image of Exodus and, and what happened very shortly after he brought them out of Egypt into the promised land, the words, the more they called to them. Not the prophets, but, but the, the voices of the Moabite women, the voices of those idolaters, the more they called to them, the more they went to them. And, and, and see the contrast. I called them out of Egypt, but now the voices of those calling to them are drawing them away from me. The more they went from me, they kept sacrificing to the bales and burning incense. See, the picture that we've seen in the other three vignettes is duplicated here in this. The, the blessing that they were called to has been rejected, has been put aside to follow their sin and their idolatry. The more they called, the more they wanted to go to their sin. And yet, and yet we hear God, even when he's saying this about them, verse 3, yet, see he's remembering, he's, he's not going to give them up, yet it was I. 
and it's emphatic in the Hebrew. It was I, not they, not those voices, not those ones who draw, drew them into idolatry, but it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms. And any of you who have been a parent have, have watched this scene over and over, haven't you? We, we just went through that very recently in the last few months with our two little granddaughters, watching the parents watching the other grandparents, taking them by the hands, walking with them, helping steady them. It's a beautiful, poignant picture. And God said, it was I. It was I that taught them how to walk. It was I that was watching for them to guide them, to steady them, to, to teach them how to, to balance and how to get about. I took them in my arms. Again, this is not a God who is aloof. This is not a God who is disinterested. I taught them. I walked in front of them to guide them and protect them. How did he do this? By holding them in my arms. He, he's a hands-on father. He is not distant. And why? Because he knows the way is narrow. And there will be stumbling blocks. And there is those temptations in the wilderness. And he says, I held them in my arms. I taught them to walk. But they knew not that it was I that healed them. And all I can think of here is, why does he bring healing here. Why does he kind of change the metaphor a little bit from, from that beautiful picture of helping that child to keep them from something and say, I who healed them. It, isn't it the father? Isaiah says the mothers do this better than earthly fathers, but God does it better than mothers or fathers. He is the one to whom they go. Father, make it better. Father, kiss it. Help me. He is the one who, who was ready to be there for them. For them to come to him. This tender father who would bend to heal their wounds. To comfort their griefs. But they would not know. They did not know. And knowing is admitting the truth. Acknowledging that God is the one who takes care of them. God is the one who has pure emotions. God is the one who has pure motives. God is the one who has grace to deliver them and, and, and to care for them in his providence. That's the knowing. And, and what we don't know for sure, it says they did not know. Either they forgot, and many of us do, or they didn't realize, or it may be simply that they refused to acknowledge that God was the one who healed them. But God says, I, I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. I, I, I did these things. I was father to them. 
I led them with the cords of man with bonds of love. Now there are some, and the New American Standard apparently takes this approach, that this changes the metaphor, that he's looking back at chapter 10 where he talked about Ephraim as the trained heifer, and he talked about them, one who loves to thrash, and I came over them, their fair neck with a yoke. And, and the image here would be that with these, that, that really, in reality, in retrospect, God is pampering his heifer. God is the one, he says, Ephraim loves to thresh. He loves that easy work. He, he loves to be unmuzzled so that he can eat while he's threshing out the grain. And I enjoyed watching him. That I, I loved him in it. Uh, his fair neck to me, I, I, I would not put that rough yoke around. I, I would... I would be as one who lifts the yoke from their necks. It would be cords of love and not cords of punishment. It would be bonds of my love to them because of I just couldn't help it. I, it overflows in me. And God would be to them more gracious than they could even ask or think. And more gracious, as we will see in verses 5 through 7, than the Assyrian king will treat them. And yet God says, I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. But I rather take these as bonds, as some say, the, the word for bonds and the word for yoke is, is very similar, the, the similar roots. But here in the context, what we see, the cords of a man and bonds of love, perhaps it could be rewritten this way, I became to them as a person who lifts a toddler against their cheeks, and I reached down to them and gave them food to eat. Every time I see my daughter and, and my daughter-in-law pick up their little, their little daughter's that is exactly what they do. They lift them and the first place they go is right to their cheek. It's as if they're saying, you are mine and I love you and I will do everything in my power to see that you are kept safe and led. No, these arms are bonds of my love. I led them with cords of a man. God teaches men rationally. I know who you are. I, I know that you deal rationally and reasonably. And my laws, the, the things that I've given you to follow, they are reasonable. You, you can understand them. And I have made it clear that they are equitable laws. And so I lead you with cords of a man. I draw you in the direction that you should go with the cords of man, the bonds of love. The psalmist says, be not like the horse or the mule that has to be led with bit and bridle. Why? What does the bit and bridle do? It hurts. But he says, I draw you with cords of a man. Rationally, I've spoken to you and reasonably, I've reasoned with you. That is what God is like. Come, he says, let us reason together. And he's drawn them with the bonds of love gently. Not harshly, not to bite, not, not to grab. 
He says, and, and this is true of any parent, it's as if he says, I've considered your sin, whether it is weakness or whether it is willful disobedience. And any parent has to discern that, does he not? Is this just because the child is ignorant or the child cannot understand or is he being willfully defiant? And God says, I dealt with you gently. I discerned of your sin, whether it was that you needed to understand more or whether you were defying me. And I remembered your frame. I remembered you, you are but dust. I remembered your weaknesses. And I treat you because I know who you are. And my love will not let me do otherwise. But he also has treated them humanely. He says, I, as if he had said, I have aimed at your good as well as my glory. Yes. I want you to know who I am, but I have aimed at your good that you will be built up, that you will be strong as a people, that as a community you will know that I am the Lord and you will rejoice in it. And I have preserved in all my dealings with you hope, hope of reconciliation, hope of preservation of this relationship that you have been drawn into with me. Some call the Old Testament compared to the New Testament as the seed to the flower. We, we see the seed in the Old Testament scriptures by the prophets, but we, we don't really know what the full flower will look like until it blooms in the New Testament. And that is a helpful picture. I think as Gresham Machen, who coined the phrase, at least I heard it from reading him, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. And there is something about that seed and the flower. But I would like to present to you today a new, perhaps a new perspective in addition to that from Daniel Hubbard. The late Daniel Hubbard says in his book, I consider the Old Testament prophets like Hosea uh, as having entered a relay race in which they take the, the themes of divine grace and the promises of God, and they, like the, the relay runner, he thrusts the baton forward. He thrusts it forward toward the New Testament writers. He, he takes everything that God has given them, thus saith the Lord, and he writes it down and he observes it, and he thrusts it forward to the New Testament writers and the New Testament writers, in, in the themes that they're dealing with, in the issues that the Holy Spirit has led them in, they look back. They look back and they grasp that which carries their themes forward and they grasp it firmly and begin to run forward with it so that they can show as they run the race to the people, to us, this is the meaning. This is how it is fleshed out. This is what God is, is doing in these verses. And so I think we see, some of you may have said, you know, how, how can Hosea even use the Exodus? Out of Egypt have I called my son. Some of you may be thinking of what we read at Christmas time, right? When, when, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and he was 
they were warned by the wise men that Herod was coming. And they were, the, his parents were warned in a dream to take the child Jesus where? To Egypt. And Matthew says, this is how the scriptures written by the prophet will be fulfilled because God says, out of Egypt I have called my son. And here we see that the New Testament writer Matthew has reached back and he's grasped that baton and he's thrusting it forward to us, painting that picture, making that seed, if you will, blossom so that we can see. Out of Egypt, God called his son. He sees the parallels there. And we can go down quickly and look at them. But we see that Egypt played a key role in both, do we not? In the Exodus that where, again, Moses has said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son. Let him go that he may serve me. Out of Egypt he called his son for that very purpose that he could serve him. And we see that God did the very same thing with his son. Out of Egypt he called his son, why? That he may serve the purpose that God has for him to bring many sons to glory. We see his nurturing grace to them. The people of, of Israel, there was that family of Joseph and all of his brothers of Jacob who went to Egypt, a small band. And why? Because there was a famine in the land they needed to eat in order to preserve them. God sent Jesus with his parents to Egypt in order to preserve them from the sword of Herod. And yet out of Egypt, he calls his son, out to the land promised. And so we see that the people came out of the land as Israel, as that two and a half million people coming out that God preserved. And Jesus comes out of Egypt as what? The new, true Israel of God and the people that he would draw to himself. And Hosea later in chapter 12, verse 13, he says, By a prophet Israel was kept. <laughs> and we know that Jesus, not only is he king, not only is he high priest, but he is also the prophet. By a prophet we are kept. And we see Jesus as the greater Moses. All of these things, you know, Hosea, did he know that this is what he was writing about? I don't think so, and yet he saw it and greeted it from afar. And yet he thrust that baton forward, showing us the grace and the love of God and the bands of love that would draw us toward him. Because Hosea is not a book about Hosea. Yeah, that's how we read it, the book of Hosea. But there's almost nothing of Hosea beyond what God told him to do. Yes, his actions. Yes, what he actually did. But are there any emotions that Hosea puts into his writing? No. But there is front and center the emotions of God, Jehovah, Yahweh. They're here for us to see. And I think when we consider the love of God, we, we make too much of human love. 
We, we, I, the word that came to my mind was human fathers are indulgent. They either indulge their children or indulge themselves, do they not? Either they're, they're too, I don't know, mamby-pamby to discipline their children and they give them everything they want thinking, well, that's what a loving father does. Or on the other hand, they're self-indulgent and they become despots in their own house where they punish where there is no warning. And they turn on their children when there is no warrant. And their children are confused. But it's not with God. And, and, and there is that danger that, that we, we're afraid of the Scripture sometimes. We're afraid. Yes, I, I couldn't see out of Israel I called my son. And, and there are some who say, you know, Luther really, he blew it because he said he saw Christ on every page of the Bible. Yeah, I think there is a warning there. But when it comes to the love of God, I think we see too little. We, we give him too little credit. Look at him. Look at him here. Yet it was I. I who called them. I who drew them. I who walked with them. I who lifted them to my cheek to make them know the depth of my love and my care for them. In Romans 9, Paul it seems like he picks this up. This, this thing that Hosea is doing, putting God front and center. He, he says, he talks about Esau and, and, and Jacob. And he's talking about, you know, the birth order didn't matter because God had chosen that the younger would, the, the older would serve the younger. And he says, why? In order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand not because of works. See, not because of what Jacob or Esau did or didn't do, but because of him who calls. See, the book of Hosea is not about human betrayal and defection, but it is about the divine response to that human betrayal and defection. So that there is hope here because again, it is not on Israel's obedience or disobedience. It's not on their counsel or discounsel. It's not on whether the Assyrians were nice to them and the Egyptians helped them or not. It is on God. It's on his response. And what do we see here? It's, it's a visceral response, is it not? It's a love that is deep. There was a story in the sports world besides March Madness this week, of the Major League Baseball player who retired from baseball because the front office of his team said that he could not bring his 14-year-old son to every game and every practice and have a locker and a uniform like the other players. And so he, rather than not bring his son, he gave up his guaranteed $13 million salary. And there are those, and I read a few articles, there are those who said, what ardent love? Or those who would say, you know, that's vulnerable love. You know, he's exposed himself to the entire social network to, to, to be either ridiculed and criticized or, or to be praised. And then look what it cost him, $13 million. But I would submit to you that, yes, 
that human love is, is strong. For by all accounts, the, the young man, the 14-year-old, was well-liked in the locker room. He was well-respected. He, 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 he followed the rules. He did not disrupt. He, he was not a distraction to the team. In fact, the manager says that he, the, the young man, the 14-year-old, may be more mature than more of the players on the team. But I would submit to you that, yes, this ardent love, do you want to hear ardent love? Jeremiah 31, God says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart still yearns for him. I shall surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. There's more ardent love. And yes, this, this player's love was vulnerable. But is it more vulnerable than the love of God? In Deuteronomy 10, he says, I am God of gods and Lord of lords, great and mighty and awesome, showing no partiality, executing justice. But what does the scripture describe his son? How does it describe the one that he says, it's my son? Stiff-necked iron-sinewed, impudent, rebellious, walking contrary to God, hardening their hearts. Vulnerable love, that's vulnerable love. Yet I still yearn for them, he says. Costly. Was this costly love for this ball player? $13 million, that's some coin. But God's love was more costly. He didn't give up $13 million. He gave up his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his son and did not spare him but gave him up for all. That's costly love. Do not sell the love of God as the love of men. Fathers, we fall short. We're going to be indulgent on both sides and sometimes so mixed up in the middle we don't know which way to turn. But God's love is ironclad. God's love is a yearning love. God's love is a visceral love. And look at, look at again, what he's dealing with here in verses 5, 6, and 7. They will not return to the land of Egypt. Again, the, the Hebrew is a little nondescript there. I, I think you could say, will they not return to Egypt? We, we, either literally, we know that some of them sought refuge in Egypt, but spiritually as well. Typically, I, we've spoken of that. People want to return to their bondage, do they not? There is this morbid thing about turning to that which caused them to be slaves. And, and will they not? Yes, some of them will turn back to Egypt thinking that, well, I may have missed it the first time, but maybe there's something. Assyria, he will be their king. Yeah, they thought they lost their king in chapter 10. Our king is no more. There it goes on the cart, right? And he's saying, no, 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 no. The Assyrian, he, he will be your king. You've never met a king like this. His tyranny, his despotic nature, no. This will be something that you have not experienced. Why? Because they refuse to return. They refuse to turn and acknowledge God as doing these things. They refused. See, there is something about not knowing. But when God's people refuse, that aggravates all sin. And look what will come 
The sword will whirl. See, you've got three verbs here. It'll whirl, it'll demolish, it will devour. It's, you know, it's, when my kids came into the living room whirling something, all I could think of was, this isn't going to end well. The damage, right? He's talking about the damage. And what is the damage against? It's against the fortresses. What does the fortresses represent to Israel? Self-reliance. We got this. We built these towers. We built these buildings. No, he says, it'll whirl against them. And they'll demolish their gate bars. What does the gate bars represent? That's that's the gate of the city. That's where the elders, that's where the princes sit. (laughs) He's already said, their counsel is no good. Their their counsel is contrary to, 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 to me. And he says, I'll consume them because of their counsels. I'll devour them. I'll, I'll chew them up. It doesn't look good. The havoc is coming. And here to me is the one, verse 7, so my people are bent on turning from me. We talk about that, right? We talk about our children have bents. They, they, they bend contrary to what you would have them do. Or they bend in with the prevailing winds. And as parents, we have to watch, well, what are your bents? But he says they are bent on nothing good here, on turning from me. They're hung up on it. They're determined. There's a persistent pattern of apostasy here. They're bent on it. And the perversity of it all is, he says, my people are bent on turning away from me. In the same breath, he still... Do you see the depth of his love? My people. He doesn't say they. He says my people. The one that I've done all these things for. And it reminds us of chapter 1 of Hosea, doesn't it? He says they should be called Ami, my people. But we see that the bent of their actions, the bent of their determination of turning from him, they should be called Lo, Ami, not my people. And yet, the hope that is here, the message that is here is that he still calls them my people. And again, the Hebrew is a little bit difficult here, though they call them to the one on high. It probably being though they call, though the people call them to the most high God, little g, None exalts him. The idea being that they are being called to this God, but he has no power to lift them up. He has no power to restore them or exalt them. And if that's the true rendering, contrast, the call of Jehovah, out of Egypt have I called my son with the call of the idolaters, of the Assyrians, of the Egyptians. What a pity. What a picture. If you hear his voice today, as it says in the Old Testament, do not harden your hearts and stiffen your necks. We know that unless the Father draws us, we do not approach him. Unless the Father draws us, but his drawing is with cords of a man, rationally, humanely, gently, because they are bonds of love. So if today you are feeling drawn, 
If you are feeling that God is calling you to turn and repent of a certain sin or sins, remember this, that the Father, the only one who can draw you is the Father and His cords are cords and bonds of love. In Acts chapter 7, we have the last sermon of Stephen, the martyr. And perhaps this is, goes along with the final discussion that we had Thursday night in Genesis class where we see that it, it, it tells us in chapter 11 that, that Abraham's father, Terah, and his brother, Nahor, they probably were idolaters. They probably worshipped idols. And I don't know if Stephen's sermon is a preview of coming attractions, but, but again, we, we, we were asking the question, Abraham, he's being called. He's being called to come out from among them. He's being called to come away from his family and from what he knew growing up and all of these things. But what was the difference, Stephen said? What is the difference here? He says, and the Lord of glory appeared to him. See, that makes all the difference. He called him out of his idolatry because it was the Lord of glory who appeared to him. Not because Abraham was something special. Not because he was likable. Not because, no, nothing in the man. Because the Lord of glory appeared to him and that is who he saw and it changed his life. <coughs> If you feel that draw, if you feel that calling, look to Him. We see the glory of God in who? In the face of Christ. Look to Him, Hebrews says. Look to Him and live. He is drawing you. He is calling you. He is calling you His son, His daughter. There is in here this vision in chapter, verses 5 through 7 of a people confused, a people who, who, who kind of are, are, are champing at the bit of the law of God. There, in the Chaldee, it can be that my people are being tossed to and fro, and in their own minds, they're confused. It reminds me of James chapter 1 where he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. But let him ask with faith and no doubting. We are the people of God. If God has called you, if you're his child, yes, sometimes we are confused. Sometimes we're tossed to and fro. Sometimes we hear the doctrines and we're, we, we're trying to understand where to go. Ask God. Come before God. Why? Because he gives generously and without reproach. And in this verse we see that then they called upon this high God which was no God. It could not exalt them. It could not bring them. But there is also here perhaps a rendering that says, though they call to the one on high, to the one who is high and mighty, but they did not exalt him they did not exalt Jehovah. And you may ask, well, but if he is almighty God, if he is high and mighty, if he is, as he said in Deuteronomy, God of gods and Lord of lords, high and mighty and awesome, how can he be exalted? But we are called to exalt him, are we not? We are called to ascribe the glory to his name. And how is he exalted? He is exalted when we fear him as God. 
He's exalted when we humble ourselves before him and acknowledge him as God of gods and not ourselves. And when we acknowledge that he is the one who made us and not we. And when we come to him as Jesus did, I have come to do thy will. Thy will be done. And when we acknowledge the sense that we are but men and women, we are frail, we are but of the dust of the earth, and he is God Almighty. And he is exalted when in spirit and truth we worship him and fall down before him and lift his name on high. He is the one who grew us. He is the one who picks us up. He is the one who reminds us, I am the one who heals you. Will we not worship him? Will we not exalt him? Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for these images of Hosea. We thank you for the fact that the writers that you chose were faithful and that by your Holy Spirit you, you led them and you caused them to record these things for our learning and for our, our good. But Father, help us to see you in these pages of Scripture. Help us to understand you, that we might exalt you, we might worship you, we might lift you up and praise you and give the glory and honor to your name. We ask that you would do this for your church, for your people, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise for the benediction taken from the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.